Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Brother David Stendel Rost. There is a shorter produced version of this, as always, wherever you found this podcast. No, no. This is not television. It's radio. We've, we're, we're filming it, but it's a real conversation. You shouldn't even think about that. Okay. And uh, speak very loudly, exaggeratedly loudly because okay. I'm practicing. Okay, yes. okay. It, it changes from day to day, okay. to day. It's about as bad it's as bad. it ever gets. So, <laughs> should we move, can we move in a little closer, do you think? Or Chat? Hey, guys, we're, uh, yeah. you know what, we have to get going because he only has one hour for now. Um, would you think we can move in a little closer yeah. for hearing? Could I have you switch spots? Yeah, yeah. And oh, you switch spots. my memory. Okay. The overall theme is... Well, gratitude will be our... Don't worry, you don't have to worry. Okay, I'm going to just... Can you hear me like this? Is this all right? A little louder still. Okay, okay. (laughs) So I think we should try to get as close as we can. Maybe not even have the table. And I have lots of notes, but don't be worried about that. Thank you. <laughs> Is that good mic position for you, Trent? Yeah. Oh. Don't worry about me. Yeah. Just worry about Trent. Don't take that. Okay. Okay. Um, let's um, talk about something mundane, like what you had for breakfast, so so Chris can get some levels. So that you get yeah. The, yeah, 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 and I'll lean forward, yeah. All right. Okay, what did you have for breakfast? What did I have for breakfast? Yeah. I always have the same for breakfast. One of those stinky uh, <laughs> rolls, or, or little streetzel, yeah. <laughs> and peanut butter, <laughs> That's it. And coffee. What is the order of the day? What's, how's the, what's the monastic rhythm here? What do I have to do after this? You no, say? no. I, what's, the monastic, what's the rhythm of a day? Do you of have morning day? prayer? It is pretty much like in most monasteries, yeah. but simpler than in, in most monasteries. We have, a, we have morning prayer at uh, 6.30 usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have... Uh, then after that is breakfast. That's kind of an optional thing. Uh, then we have meditation, uh, silent meditation together at noon from uh, 11.30 to noon. And uh, in the evening we have uh, Vespers or sometimes it's combined with the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's at 5.30 and then at uh, 9.30, which for me seems very late, we have uh, Compline. Okay. And that concludes the day. Yeah. You are probably used to the monastic days from Collegeville and mm-hmm. from St. John. Mm-hmm. I, think, I actually think Compline, <coughs> I'm not sure they have Compline, at least in the... In they may the, have it just for the monks. I yeah, think they have it just for the monks, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, 
Can we can we start? Do you think? Okay. All right. <clears throat> um, so you you were born Franz Kuno. Yeah, that's right? correct. Here in in Vienna. In Vienna, yeah, I'm very close to home again. Yes, <laughs> and here we are. Um, how how would you describe um, the religious and spiritual background of your childhood? Of my childhood. Yeah, of your childhood. Uh, I. I uh, think we had something at that time uh, that was, uh, uh, I would call it Christendom, that doesn't exist (laughs) anymore. It it was a kind of combination between uh, the Christian tradition and uh, all the social forms and customs. It was all of one piece. Mm -hmm. And... uh, in my childhood, it was just breaking down. It was still strong enough to give me good support, and I like support. My mother always said uh, when I was a little baby uh, and I wasn't very tightly wrapped, uh, as they used to wrap the babies. Very tightly, swaddled, yeah. Uh, I would yell. <laughs> Only when I was very tightly wrapped that I felt comfortable. So this tight wrap of Christendom, uh, where you knew exactly what to do, when, and how, uh, that was very good for me. Uh, <laughs> it was very congenial. Yeah. And uh, then, uh, but it, as I say, it was in. It was already breaking down. Uh, it, it, there were already uh, wounded uh, from uh, World War One. I. I remember either sitting by the street and begging yeah. or, or in wheelchairs, the ones who were better off in wheelchairs. But uh, they are a very important part of the uh, population in my childhood, mm. uh, as I remember. Mm. Uh, but uh, I'm grateful for the child, for the childhood I had. I had a, a warm and, uh, and supportive family. And, uh, and then in, in, it was in your teenage years that the world changed that it really so com- utterly. Collapsed right? completely. Right. Uh, and, and also interesting to me, um, I mean, Austria became an occupied country, it became a fascist country. And the church's role, the church's place in that very dramatic dynamic, um, I mean, you've described it, um, there was something, mag- because the church became almost a place of contrast to the culture, right? Which it, it, That's one way that Christendom, that, that monolithic Christendom was coming apart. Yes, um, yes. Uh, I, I see it uh, since I was exactly th- uh, 12 when, when Hitler came. Uh, so uh, that's, I entered my teens and I spent all my teens under Hitler. And uh, while at my, the first decade of my life was, so to say, uh, embedded in, in this unquestioned world, then when you get into your teens, you have to rebel against right. that world. But instead, we rebelled against Hitler because that was then the authority. So we were kind of pushed into um, resistance. Yeah. And it was very clear to us and it was very strong. And the church was the support of it. At first in, in Austria, uh, there was such confusion that even the cardinal kind of collapsed. But that was in March and in October they were already throwing his furniture out his, mm. the windows of, the, of his palace mm. and 
<laughs> and he was hiding in a closet, so <laughs> it went pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> when you do you think there's something about um, the the kind of life and death stakes of relig- religion uh, and and life that you that you experienced in your teenage years? Is there any connection between that? And the life you chose later. I mean, it sounds like your family went to the States and you had a comfortable life, a good life. Um, and you chose this monastic calling. And there was, it doesn't sound to me like there was anything um, preordained about that or expected about that. Well, uh, I could not really say that I chose monastic calling uh, rather it chose me. It was the other way around. Yeah. Uh, we didn't uh, expect to live, really, because when the bombs are falling left and right for a long time, and when all your friends are killed in the war, uh, you don't think much about it, but suddenly your expectations of what you do later on yeah. are very slim or non-existent. Yeah. And then <coughs> suddenly the war was over, and uh, and I was happy and I was uh, alive, to my greatest surprise. And uh, it, that wasn't actually in Vienna. I was in Salzburg at the time uh, with a girlfriend and with music and with everything that you can desire. And exactly at that time, <coughs> I realized why we were so happy because we were happy during during the war and during the occupation and we were we had a really happy happy youth i wouldn't trade it with mm-hmm. any other uh, but it occurred to me that it was because we were, had to be really in the present moment yes. we had death at all times That's before an incredible our intensity eyes. Of, of presence that intensity of presence mm-hmm. and it it i connected it with that little sentence in the rule of saint benedict to have death at all times before your eyes mm-hmm. and i had read that before and and so it suddenly became perfectly clear to me this was the way to be joyful, because mm-hmm. that had been the way joyful, regardless of what happened. And if I really wanted to be that happy, that was the way. But then all the surrounding elements of monastic life and so forth did not particularly appeal to me. And so I kind of ran away and, and got one alibi after the other, studying this and studying that, and then going to the United States. That was also a running away. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any idea that in the United States, I didn't ever think about it, but I didn't have any idea there were even Benedictine monasteries there. Yeah. And then wasn't there very long, maybe less than half a year, and I ran into this monastery and I knew this is it. I was there less than 24 hours, and uh, I knew this was it, and I'm still a member of it. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of love at first sight. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I, I want to I drill down and focus in this, this for the rest of our time on, on the notion of gratitude. Um, but I think it's really important that we've kind of delved into the the backdrop of your life and how you came to that because there's there's depth and heft and gravitas. I mean, it's it's um, I think gratitude is one of these words culturally that can can get 
become superficial, right? Can become, and, yeah. But we're going to talk about spiritual gratitude and, and, and the depth of that. And uh, one, one thing you do is you, you use the word gratefulness uh, sometimes rather than gratitude. And I, I, I wonder if you would talk about what is, is helpful about that language for mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. of gratefulness at getting at kind of the gratitude as you, under, as you come to understand it. The reason why I use the words gratitude and gratefulness and thanksgiving uh, in the way in which I use them is that we really need different terms for our experience. And uh, we all know from experience that uh, moments in which this gratitude wells up in our hearts uh, are experienced first as as if something were filling up within us, uh, filling with joy, really, uh, but not yet articulate. And then comes the point where this the heart overflows and we sing and we thank somebody and and for that I like a different term and then I call that thanksgiving. Uh, And the two of them are two aspects or two phases actually of the process that is gratitude. So that's why I'm using it in this way. And, And this idea of a vessel that uh, is still inarticulate until it overflows. Uh, uh, that is also very helpful in, a, in another way. It's like uh, the bowl of a fountain when it fills up and it's very quiet and, and still. And then when it overflows, it starts to make noise and it sparkles and it, it ripples. Right. And that is really when the joy comes to itself, so to say, when it is articulate. And uh, for us, for many people in our culture, uh, the heart fills up with joy, uh, with gratefulness, and just at the moment when it wants to overflow and and really the joy comes to itself, at that moment... uh, advertisement comes in and says, no, no, there's a better model and uh, there's a newer model and uh, your neighbor has mm. a bigger one. And, mm. and so instead of overflowing, we make the ball bigger and bigger and bigger. And it never overflows. It never uh, gives so us this joy. Yeah. It's yeah. affluent, this affluent society. That means it always flows in. It doesn't overflow. It mm. flows in mm. and in and in and in and chokes us eventually. Yeah. And in other countries, we, we see uh, uh, very poor people who, compared to us, have practically nothing. But they are so joyful, all the time grateful and joyful, because one little drop is enough for this boat to overflow. Right. It's so small. Right. <laughs> so we can learn from that. We, can, uh, we don't have to deprive ourselves of anything, but we can learn that... Uh, it, the real joy comes with quality, not with quantity. Okay. And that's and an important are, distinction. There are, there are a few um, quality, say, aspects or qualities of the experience of gratefulness and thanksgiving that you've noted that I'd love to just draw out. Um, and one of them is beholding. Um, that there's, you know, what you, what you mean by, you know, and that's, that surprise can yeah. be a beginning 
yeah. of of being grateful and beholding and also listening. I mean, I guess what we're talking about here is attending. Yeah. Um, well, uh, for me, this uh, idea of listening and, and really looking and beholding, uh, that comes in when people ask, well, how shall we practice yes. uh, this gratefulness? Yes. And, uh, and there is a very simple uh, kind of methodology to it. Uh, stop, look, go. Uh, <laughs> we, we are, most of us, uh, caught up in schedules and deadlines and, and rushing around. And so the first thing is that we have to stop because otherwise we are not really coming into this present moment at all. Uh, we can't even appreciate uh, the uh, opportunity that is given to us because we rush by and it rushes by. Uh, so stopping is the first thing. But that doesn't have to be long. Uh, no. When you are in practice, a split second is enough. You stop. And then you look, what is now the opportunity of this given moment? Only this moment and the unique opportunity of this moment. And that is where this beholding comes in. Okay. And if we really see what the opportunity is, we must, of course, not stop there, but we must do something with it. Go. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, do something. Uh, avail yourself of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, uh, if you try practicing that at this moment, uh, tonight, uh, we will already be happier people because it has an immediate feedback of, of joy. But uh, the key word is opportunity. I always mm -hmm. uh, say not, I, I don't speak of the gift, but uh, I speak of the opportunity. Because not for everything that's given to you can you really be grateful. You can't be grateful for uh, a war in a given situation or violence or domestic violence or um, right. sickness, things like that. There are many things for which you cannot be grateful. But at every moment you can be grateful because even if the gift as such is not something... For, the apparent gift, that's which is given to you, that yeah. with which you are confronted, is apparently some, is something for which you cannot be grateful. It brings with it the opportunity. And for the opportunity, the, in every moment you can be grateful. For instance, the opportunity to learn something from a very different, difficult experience, mm -hmm. or to grow by it, or uh, even to protest, to stand up and right. and take a stand, right. that right. is a wonderful gift uh, in a situation in which things are not the way they ought to be. Yeah. So opportunity is really the key when people ask, can you be grateful for everything? No, not for everything, but in every moment. And you are um, a Benedictine. And, um, I mean, it seems to me that the Psalms, in fact, are... Um, Provide such an, a, 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 a rich demonstration of I mean, gratitude is woven into almost every psalm in some way, right? But it, 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 uh, it is held together with an expression of every conceivable human emotion, anger, fury, murderous fury, a sense of injustice and unfairness and despair and sadness and disappointment. And the, the gratitude is, 
is still there kind of as an insistence, but it's more resilient than the circumstances of the moment, right? It's not a reaction to the circumstances of the moment, but it's a it's 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 an intention that is held. I don't know. I mean, you. It's you, not you a reaction. Yeah, what is you it? Put it very well. It's, it's not a reaction to the present moment because that would be something automatic. But it is a chosen it's a response. Choice, yes. It's a real response yes. to every moment. And, and I love. I think when you say not just to what's happened, but to the opportunity that that you can discern that has been presented. And that is why uh, it really secures the kind of joy that we as human beings look for. I always say joy is the happiness that uh, doesn't depend on what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And usually we have the idea, well, when something nice happens, then I'm happy. And when something bad happens, of course I'm unhappy. Well, you can be unhappy and yet joyful. We don't think of that, but there is a deep inner peace and joy in the midst of sadness. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we feel our way into it, we, we know that. For instance, uh, losing a friend, a dear friend, under normal circumstances, not through an accident or so, but under normal circumstances, losing our grandparents, losing our parents when they get very old. Uh, there's a deep sadness, but there's also a, a great mm, a joy. Celebration. In a celebration. Mm-hmm. A joy uh, for all the love that we received and gave. And, and that kind of joy is what we really want because happiness is, is not steady. But joy can be steady, and that's what we really want. We want the happiness that, that lasts. Yeah, yeah. I also, I, there's also this, uh, oh, I think, again, to this, you know, this, in the Psalms, there's, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then somewhere you, which is, again, kind of a choice to acknowledge that every day, whatever happened yesterday, whatever you're dreading today. But something you quoted, uh, you used to some lines of Maya Angelou, which to me is a wonderful paraphrase of that in a way. This is a wonderful day. I've never seen this one before. Yes. <laughs> which is an orientation to the day, right? Yes. Uh, that uniqueness of every given moment and yeah. of every day to open your eyes and know another day. You know, We can't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. We can't take it for granted. In my youth, we couldn't take it for granted because every night the bombs fell. But if you maintain this attitude... It's just as realistic. There are all yeah. sorts of reasons why you couldn't see another day, and you do, and and that is that's a wonderful thing. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. Um, you also talk about gratitude as being absolutely uh, uh, inextricable from the notion of belonging. Um. And I think you're talking about belonging to God and belonging to each other. Yes. Um, say, say something about that. Uh, I remember uh, the, the grace that Buddhists pray before a meal uh, starts with the words, innumerable be- 
innumerable beings brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. Uh, and when you uh, put that into practice and, uh, and look at what's there at your table, at your, at your, on your plate, uh, there is no end to uh, connectedness, you know. Uh, in the end, for instance, uh, most people don't think of it, but in the end, we always eat earth. We eat earth. Uh, not in an abstract way, in a very concrete way. This humus is what we eat. Mm. Uh, uh, or crystals, when we eat salt, it's pretty obvious that comes out of the earth, that's earth, directly. When we eat uh, vegetables, well, the vegetables were nourished by all the nutrients in the earth, and then uh, now we eat them, or the fruits of these plants. Uh, if we eat meat or fish, then they were nourished by vegetables, and they were nourished by the earth. always comes back to earth. But that is only one aspect. Uh, everything was... Uh, uh, most of it was grown, also, so people had to work on sowing it and harvesting it, packaging right. it, transporting it. There you have already a couple of thousand people whom you will never see, never know by name, never meet, and yet without them, there wouldn't be anything on your plate, you know. Uh, there's this wonderful cartoon where the family sits at Thanksgiving around the table and say, thank you, Jesus. And then in a cloud comes a farm worker whose name happens to be Jesus, like the Mexican farm workers, <laughs> yeah. and says, the nada. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So uh, all the farm workers, they have been working on getting this food to us. Mm -hmm. uh, people whom sometimes we even think of as strangers. Uh, they're both strangers. Everything hangs together with everything. And then, of course, horizontally with our people, our animals, our plants, the, the earth, and vertically with uh, the great mystery in which we are embedded, uh, which those who use the term correctly, call God. Uh, it's, it's not somebody up there. It's more personal than it w would be if there's somebody up there. It is this tremendous mystery that, uh, to which I'm as a human being totally uh, directed, totally related to. Right. That makes us human. We are related to that which we are called God. That's tremendous reality. And this inextricability from, or this connection between gratitude and dependence and interdependence. Dependence on what? Dependence and interdependence, interdependence. right? That any complex yeah, yeah, experience yeah. of gratitude would make us aware of that. Yeah. Um, how do you work with that in terms of uh, the people with whom, well, with enemies, right? With the, the interdependence that is uncomfortable and, and uh, hard on us and bad for us. I mean, how do you work through the complexity of this virtue of gratitude in those kinds of circumstances? Well, uh, the main thing is to think it, I think the beginning is the starting point, is to think it through. Uh, the moment you speak of independence, I can just say, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> what is anybody talking about who says I'm independent? E even from one's enemies. From yeah. every point of view. Uh, if if I didn't have enemies, I wouldn't be who I am. Uh, God forbid we had no enemies, then we wouldn't have any friends either because if you choose your friends, you have immediately, by the same act, chosen those who are against you. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, but we can love them. We can also love our enemies. Uh, love means not this lovey-dovey feeling. When we get a nice feeling, that's wonderful. I'm all for it. But uh, love is very often without any feelings of comfort or so. It is always... Uh, uh, yes, we belong together. A lived yes, we belong together. So it's a decision. It's something that has more to do with the will than with your emotions or with your uh, thoughts. It is the clear will. Uh, I say yes to this embedding, to this connection of all with all. I say yes to it. And when I say yes to it, not just with my mouth, but I actually live that yes. Yeah. I behave as one behaves when one belongs together. And uh, and that is so central that uh, in the monastic life, for instance, uh, at, uh, at the very end of every time we get together to pray, at the very end is always... Uh, well, in Latin it was benedicamus domino deo gratias. It can be translated, let us say God is good. Benedicamus domino, let us say God is good. Thanks be to God. You see? That's, uh, and, and that sums it all up, so to say, if you have been sleepy and missed the whole office, this last thing sends you out, and, and then you go out and, and live that. Yeah. Um. And and so I you know I'm struggling a little bit because there's the there's this level at which we we spend our days there are the people we actually know and interact with and I think in those circumstances when we think about who our enemies are or who is plaguing us you know it may be somebody in our workplace it may be somebody in our neighborhood it may be a family member and as much as that may be a struggle we do on some level know our interdependence with them but we also live in this world geopolitically right now where this idea of enemies is suddenly writ large so much, right? Our enemies, um, especially in America, there's such a sense of that. Um, do, do, you, do you extend um, this spiritual notion of gratitude? Do you extend it to thinking about that geopolitical level? Like how these insights would... How these insights would shape how we live, what we do. Again, one can simply start with how we experience it. Uh, a simple case, uh, before we come to the big social implications, but yeah. just uh, a colleague in, in the office or so, uh, if really it's your enemy and behaves terrible, behaves really bad, assume, uh, if you now also behave bad, it gets worse and worse and worse. You're just learning it from him or her to behave miserably. That's the end of it. If you learn uh, to say, we are enemies, unfortunately, 
but we belong together. And I will take a clear stance, but I will not harm you because we belong together. If I harm you, I'm harming me. We are that closely connected. I will take a clear stance, but I will be fair, and I will be, and I will seek every opportunity to. Uh, come to an understanding, to negotiate. I will not go to violence. Violence is not necessary. For, mm-hmm. and, we, and even people who uh, act violently against us can be, uh, can be won over. Uh, one uh, one uh, method that I have sort of invented for myself is when somebody is really nasty... <laughs> I look at them, and uh, this is not difficult at all. I make them, in my looking at them, younger and younger and younger until there is a little baby. (laughs) And this baby is misbehaving. Well, uh, it still is misbehaving. But it's cute, and 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 I can uh, I would never use violence against the baby, and so we can do that. Mm -hmm. And these simple things that we learn how it works and how it doesn't work in our relationship to human beings every day, uh, we can apply that and should apply that on a very, Mm -hmm. on the largest scale. Mm -hmm. That means negotiate, don't uh, retaliate. Retaliation leads to absolutely nothing. We know it, and still we do it all the time. Mm -hmm. Why do we do it? It is unexplainable. You know, um, I remember John Lewis. Do you know that name? He was one of the great civil rights leaders in yeah. the 60s, and now he's a congressman. Him telling me that when they prepared for those for the civil rights actions, they they would they were they were taught and they would meditate on, say, a policeman is beating them, right? But on seeing that that person as a baby. Yeah. And, and, yes. And also, and also imagining, <laughs> did something happen to them? Like they were, an, they were an innocent, beautiful baby. Yeah. And what something brought them to this point where they're beating another human being, but that he was connecting with the with the child that that person was. It's just very much what you just That's said. That's beautiful. That is where compassion comes in, because uh, our negotiation with with. Enemies, in quotes, uh, ought to be compassionate. People are not out of the blue nasty or violent. They, they are, uh, have bad experiences. They have suffered a great deal. The more violent somebody is, the more su- they have suffered. You can be sure of that. And so you can pity them and you can real. And pity is such a wonderful word. It comes from pietas that was, in oh. Latin, family affection. Family mm. affection, oh. pity. Mm. Somebody, you pity them because we are all one family, one big human family. Um, I want to read something. I, 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 I think one thing, uh, when we talk about something like gratitude or even compassion, it, it can sound so, again, it's kind of cerebral, kind of like a lovely idea. And obviously we're breaking that down, but um, I think it comes through very much in your uh, writing that this is something, gratitude is something full-bodied and full-blooded. Here's something you wrote, um, and, and literally full-bodied. You said, I'm grateful, allowing my emotions fully to taste and to express the joy I have received, and thus I make it flow back to its source by returning thanks. 
the whole person is involved when we give thanks from our hearts. The heart is that center in which the human person is one. The intellect, the intellect recognizes the gift as gift. The will acknowledges my dependence. The emotions, like a sounding board, give fullness to the melody of this experience. And isn't it fascinating that we're living in this moment in the 21st century where actually science is excavating this virtue of gratitude, starting with our bodies, um, in a way that theology never could. And I know you've been involved in dialogues and with, with that. In this sense, uh, science has really discovered uh, uh, spirituality, because uh, at least I def define spirituality from the word spirituality comes from spiritus, that means life breath, aliveness. Uh, spirituality is aliveness uh, on all levels. Uh, it, it must start with our bodily aliveness. For many people, uh, say the sense of smell is practically non-existent. Mm. If you really are grateful, come alive with your smell. Start smelling, not sightseeing, but smell smelling. And, and it is it's wonderful. It mm. makes you so much more alive. So it starts with the body. But of course, when we say spirituality, we also mean aliveness to interrelationships, aliveness to our confrontation with that great divine mystery with which we are confronted as human beings and which we can sort of look away from or forget uh, or be dead to. We have become alive to it. Mm. And all this coming alive, that is, uh, a, a, that is spirituality. And so... Uh, science has discovered that when people are grateful, they come alive. Yes, that They're you can offer these, all these measurable outcomes of well-being. Measurable of, which outcome, you can say aliveness. aliveness and yes. well-being. Yes. And, uh, and it's, it's marvelous. It's, it's, it's just delightful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but many people have been waiting until science gives it a little push, and that's <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, since you since you talked about um, spirituality, I mean, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, how, how do you talk about um, the distinction, the connection between religion and spirituality? The, you know, those two words. I feel like this is something people are very curious about, and we we're, we're evolving our understanding of that. Yeah. Uh, religion is a difficult word because uh, it really combines two very, very different things. Uh, and you're never quite sure which one you're talking about when you say religion. On the one hand, religion is uh, our innate religiosity. Humans are religious beings, all humans. That means we are... Uh, open towards this great mystery uh, that some use the word God for, but uh, whether they use it or not, we are all confronted with that great mystery as human beings. And in that sense, uh, religiousness is very close to spirituality. Uh, it has a, it's, it's actually a very beautiful word because it might well come, not, uh, linguistically not absolutely sure, but it might well come from religare, that, uh, in Latin that would mean tying again, tying again 
bonds that were broken. Mm. And that's the, the bond to our true self, the bond to all other beings, humans and animals and plants, and the bond to that great mystery with which we are also bonded and related. So in that sense, religiousness is a very nice word, but it's a bit cumbersome, and so yeah. we better say spirituality. The other thing is, out of this uh, religiousness, uh, human beings have at certain times in history created uh, historical and social uh, bodies uh, that are called the religions or the religious traditions usually starts with a founder that is a particularly spiritual person, a deeply spiritual person, and then it kind of... Uh, it gets a life of its own. It kind of hardens. It kind of freezes. Uh, at first, uh, there is the myth. There is the story, the, the, the joyful story. Uh, uh, that then is retold and retold and hardens into dogma. Mm -hmm. uh, then, at first, there is um, behaving right. Uh, yes, we are all brothers and sisters, so let's behave like that. that that's part of it. Uh, that also is wonderful, but sooner or later it hearts into do's and don'ts and into moralism. And then it's the celebration of it. Your feelings want to celebrate it. Your intellect uh, interprets it. Your will says, yes, that, let's do it. And your, your feelings resonate and celebrate. And that gives you the ritual that also belongs to every religion. And that also is wonderful. And, and especially today when... Uh, religious structures have here in the West largely broken down. I pity the children because they have so few rituals. Right, uh, and rituals are something we need as human beings, for it, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that too can then harden into ritualism and yeah. uh, that doesn't help anybody. So I compare these uh, religions that we find in, in the world uh, with... Uh, uh, sort of old volcanoes. At one time, they were <laughs> spewing fire and were a gorgeous uh, spectacle. And now uh, the lava has hardened, and, and uh, nobody would recognize that that was at one point fire. It's all uh, it's all rock. But here and there, somebody comes along, uh, like Mother Teresa or Oscar Romero. Or, Cesar Chavez, whoever, and makes a little crack or makes a little crack and out comes this live fire again. <laughs> uh, so that's what, what each one of us is mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. responsible for doing or mm -hmm. with a different image. Uh, at first, religions or spiritualities are um, like springs of living water. They're just gushing forth in the desert. And then the climate is very bad, and so they freeze. And before you know it, much of what we see around as religions is sort of icicles. Mm. <laughs> Instead mm. of God's mm. chosen people, God's frozen people. 
<laughs> phrase about Northern <laughs> Europe, right? Yeah. <laughs> How do you get yeah. that again to be living water? Yeah. And there you have to do it with the warmth and the, uh, and the fervor of your own heart. Each one of us, we have a certain responsibility if we stand in a, in a particular religion. Mm-hmm. And that has its own great advantages because uh, it, it gives us forms, it gives us um, examples, uh, it gives us relatives all the others that ever belong to it and will belong to it it's it's a it's a good healthy embedding uh, but it also costs a lot of work mm-hmm. <laughs> in the work it's interesting to me um i mean you are part of this tradition of ben- the benedictine tradition which um which is very much embedded in the the great enterprise of the Roman Catholic Church and of Christianity. Although monasticism uh, in its many origins um, was, was monastic traditions or kind of arose as spiritual renewal movements, right? I mean, kind of what you're saying, you know, a church that had grown institutional and imperial and lost its fire and its spirit and so monastics, in a sense, have always kind of been rebels in their way. Um, and I find, you know, and I, I know you must think about this. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and, you know, your TED Talk has seen, been, had four million views. People watching a monk talk about gratitude. Um, people, as, you're, as you say, I mean, ever since the Second World War, I think all over the, the West, certainly, that religious world that that those those things that got passed on that these you know rituals that people inherit an identity that's all very fluid and dispersed and not there for a lot of people um, and yet um even people who are very disconnected from institutions are fine are you know this there's there's this spirituality that is bubbling up and is very vital and so people are turning to, you know, Benedictine monks to talk about gratitude and prayer. Um, I guess what, and what, it's, it's interesting to me, and people are flocking to monasteries on yeah. retreat. Um, and it seems to me that, that the, especially the connection between monasticism and the new spirituality, actually there's something very organic that makes sense about this in terms of the roots of monasticism, that monasticism itself, even while it may look established, has always been something kind of on the edges um, of religion. I'm kind of thinking out loud, but I wonder if this is something you yes, ponder. Uh, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, I would uh, not like to say, though, uh, I would express it differently, that monasticism was on the edges. In some respects, it was on the edges of the institution. That's what you mean. Yes, that's but what I mean. as far as the tradition is concerned, it was at the very Driving heart. Driving to the core. At the very core. Yes, yes. Uh, because uh, the uh, core of every uh, religion is, is the religion of the heart, and that is the monastic life. Yeah. Uh, of course, as an institution, and monasteries are also institutions, it also again and again hardens and and uh, becomes decadent, has to be renewed. But as an idea, the monastic uh, life uh, is 
a group, it's, it's, all the different monasteries are a network of, a, of networks. Every monastery is a little network of, of monks and all the ones that belong to it. Uh, it's interesting, for instance, that today when the number of monks in most monasteries, not, not everywhere, in other parts of the world, like in Africa and in Southeast Asia, uh, a Benedictine monastery is growing, growing. growing right, right, right. And they have many young people in Yeah, it's right, very growing. Right, right. Uh, but uh, in, in the West, it's, it's uh, getting smaller and smaller as far as not monks are concerned. But so many more lay people, as oblates, as we call them, mm-hmm. as extended family members, that the monasteries, if you count the oblates, are bigger now than they were before. Yeah. Uh, and f- for these lay people who live their own lives every day, uh, but uh, in the spirit somehow of monastic life, because there's mm-hmm. a monk in each of us, uh, for them, this is really a, a great uh, help in their lives and, and a help also to live gratefully. So, uh, yes, I think the monasteries have a real special uh, special uh, vocation in our time. Uh, um, uh, kind to of work a as a model. Right? Huh? A renewed vocation. It's, yes. a, it's a vocation that has evolved, kind of. Yes, it has evolved. Yes. Uh, because this power pyramid that has uh, characterized our society, our whole civilization from the very beginning mm-hmm. uh, for 5,000 years now uh, this pyramid of power uh, where even all our admirable culture and uh, music and uh, inventions and sciences is all bought at the price of oppression and exploitation. Mm-hmm. It's very sad but mm-hmm. this power pyramid is in process of collapsing. That's what's happening in our times. Mm-hmm. And if you speak to people who are close to the top, and I have been privileged to speak to people pretty high up in uh, politics, in uh, uh, economy, in science, in all the different fields, medicine and so forth, and everybody says, we have come to the end of the rope. Things are breaking down. People who really have, have an insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this pyramid uh, right, has no future. The form and the structure of but how we did power and created. It has to be replaced by yeah. a network. Yes. And everybody knows that. <laughs> yes. And every uh, group, the monks are by no means the only ones. There are many, many communes and other groups out there that live network or a network yes. of friends, a network yeah. of women who serve. Yeah. Uh, these networks, they are the future. Uh, Raimundo Panica probably came across him, very, one of the great minds of the 20th century, he said, the future will not be a new big tower of power. The future our hope in the future is the hope into well-trodden paths from house to house. These mm. well-trodden paths from house to house. Mm. That is the image that mm. that uh, holds a lot of promise for our future. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm just saying we've got about... You, you need to leave at 2.30. You're done at 2.30? Uh, I think 10 minutes. So. We still have until 3.30, yeah. Yeah, uh, 2.30. 2.30, okay. So let me just look at my notes and see where this has gone so quickly. Um, 
so yeah, so so to this point, I was looking at a dialogue you had and with uh, Zen Roshi, and let's say you've been for a long time, even in the sixties. I mean, Thomas Merton became very well known for his dialogue with with Buddhist monastics, and you've also been part of that all this time. And I guess we're with with Thomas Merton in that great adventure back then mm. when it was so new. Um, You're well prepared. <laughs> Yeah, um, um, and so I was looking at a at a dialogue you had, um, and I don't, did not write down the name of the Roshi, but maybe you'll know what it was. And I guess you know what you just talked about is that that you know the sense that the forms that we kind of brought out of the 20th century, the way the world was structured, it seemed to work, and now it's clear it doesn't work, and it won't work much longer. And you lived through a moment in the early 20th century when, which was, but, but which, which arguably, as, as bad as we may feel it is now, was, I mean, was so much more horrendous in terms of millions of people dying and uh, global crises, you know, people starving. And, you know, you talked about the refugee crisis then, we ever, ever, you know, you, there were literally people dying by the side of the road and you were involved in that. But you said something in this dialogue that you said, you said actually, uh, we have had many thousands of crises in our history, but this world finds itself not only in a crisis, but on the brink of self-annihilation, that the stakes are higher somehow now. Um, And I wonder if you would talk about that, but also talk about how in this kind of moment, you know, how is it even reasonable uh, or how is it vital to talk about, to use language like gratitude and gratefulness? Like, how is that a resource for us? How does it make sense in this moment? Well, when we look at things like global warming uh, or (coughs) the destruction of the environment uh, or (coughs) this uncontrollable uh, violence that's breaking out <laughs> here and there, and uh, and it, it can't be sort of you can't touch it, you can't grab it. it it's yeah. Uh, yeah. that uh, is uh, uh, that is really. I think that justifies us to say we are at the brink of self annihilation. However. Uh, we must acknowledge our anxiety about it. We must acknowledge our anxiety, but we must not fear. And and gratefulness is a We great, have to acknowledge our anxiety, but we must not, not fear. Not fear. There mm-hmm. is a great difference. Mm-hmm. See, anxiety, <coughs> or anxious, being anxious, this, this word comes from a root that means narrowness, and choking, and and um, and um, actually, the original 
anxiety is our birth anxiety. See? We, we all come into this world through this very uncomfortable process of being born, unless you happen to be a cesarean baby. Uh, I think they are extremely lucky. But most of us, uh, it's, it's really a life and death struggle mm -hmm. for both the mother and the child. Uh, and that is uh, the... Uh, original, the prototype of anxiety. And fear, at that time, we do it fearlessly. Uh, because fear is the resistance against this anxiety. Okay. See? If you go with it, it brings you into birth. If you resist it, uh, you die in the womb, or your mother dies. So, so anxiety is a... Not just a, not just an understandable, but a reasonable response to a lot of it's human a experience. It's a reasonable response, and we are to acknowledge it mm -hmm. and affirm it, mm -hmm. because to deny our mm -hmm. anxiety mm -hmm. is another form of resistance. Right, it. and and so 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 that is reasonable, but the fear is actually that moment but of resisting, and it's a completely destroyed. different move, and it takes us. Our bodies, our minds, in a completely different direction. Destroys it, yeah. And uh, that is why uh, we, we can look back at our life, not only at our birth, because we don't remember that, but at all other spots where we got into a really tight spot and, and uh, suffered anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is... Uh, it's not optional in life. It's part mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. We come into life through mm -hmm. anxiety. Uh, and we look at it and remember it and say to ourselves, we made it. We got through it. We made, made it. Uh, in fact, uh, the worst anxieties and the worst uh, uh, tight spots in our life, often years later when you look back at them, uh, reveal themselves as the beginning of something completely new, right. a completely right. new life. Mm -hmm. And that can teach us. Mm -hmm. And that can give us courage also now that we think about it in looking forward and saying, yes, this is a tight spot. It's about yeah. as tight spot as the world has ever been in, or at least humankind. Uh, but if we go with it, and that will be grateful living, if we go with it, uh, it will be a new birth. And that is trust in life. And this going with it means you look, what is the opportunity? So, and, I, and I think for you, what you're getting at is you, you, for you, gratitude <coughs> is as much about being present to the moment uh, and in some sense, embracing it, whatever that means. But it's also to you about seeing the opportunity in the moment beyond and seeing the, opportunity the current circumstances. And availing yourself of the opportunity. Okay. So it's a, it's a very active. Yeah. It's a very and that active. is very difficult because anxiety has a way of paralyzing us. Mm -hmm. You see? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what really paralyzes us is fear. It's not the anxiety. It's the fear because it resists. Yeah. The moment we give right. up the resistance, and so everything hinges on this trust in life, trust. And this trust is in religious language called faith. Faith doesn't mean believing this or that. 
that might be second or third generation also of yeah. this trust. But basically, religious faith is trust in life, trust in that mystery that life is and that goes beyond the beyond. And with this trust, with this faith, we can go into that anxiety and say, it's terrible, it feels awful, but uh, it may, it, it, I trust that it is just another birth mm-hmm. into, into mm-hmm. a greater mm-hmm. fullness. You, you've said that God is a direction rather than a something. A direction. Yes. Yes, uh, but not an impersonal direction. Mm-hmm. See, mm-hmm. Uh, there is a a wonderful line uh, uh, by Rilke uh, in which he prays to God. You know, you know German, so I say it first in German. And I love Rilke as uh, you yeah, do. Yeah, so say it in German, please uh, do. He says. Uh, Ich gehe doch immer auf dich zu mit meinem ganzen Gehen, denn wer bin ich und wer bist du, wenn wir uns nicht verstehen? Mm-hmm. So he says, with every step I do, I go towards you, because who am I and who are you if we don't understand one another? See, mm-hmm. That is spoken to that great mystery. But when I say mystery, I mean not something vague. I mean yeah. something very clear. Well, it gets us back to the sense of belonging. That belonging at the core of... It's right in there. Yes, I go yes, to you. See, yes. I, the moment a human being says, I, uh, at that moment I have posited a you that goes before me, before I can say, I wasn't here <laughs> not very long ago. A uh, hundred years ago, nobody dreamed that I would ever come around. Mm-hmm. Now I'm here and I can say, I. That means I, I'm... Saying I because I'm related to a you, that mysterious you that is always here. And mm-hmm. in that sense, this mystery is not something impersonal. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's relational. It's a relation. Ultimately, everything boils down to yeah. relationship. You, you also said, I found this such an interesting... And you were talking about gratitude that, and this connection between gratitude, and it always implies belonging in many directions, that mysticism is the experience of limitless belonging. Yes. That mysticism, because again, I think that's a word, you use the word mysticism in, in Western culture, and people might think yeah. of something very abstract, you know, and very elite. No, no, I believe that uh, every one of us is a mystic, but uh, distinguished from the, because we have this experience of belonging once in a while, out of a blue, this, uh, women often say when they give birth to a child, they have it, or when we fall in love, we have this sense of belonging, or sometimes without any particular reason, suddenly out in nature, you feel one with everything, and every human being has this, but what we call the great mystics, they let this experience determine and, and shape every moment of their lives. They never forgot it. And we humans, uh, the rest of us, tend to forget it. We, we just forget it. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we keep it in mind, uh, then we are really related to that great mystery and then we can find joy in it. Mm-hmm. And it is a very audacious thing that you say that that everyone 
can be called to be a mystic. That, that I didn't hear. No. That, that mysticism is not for you the domain of professionals. That that mysticism no, is something that is the birthright yeah, of say, every yeah, human being. Uh, uh, the mystic is not a special human being. Every human being is a special kind of mystic. And I never <laughs> was around uh, that particular kind of mystic that you can be because you're unique. Never, never has anybody brought the talents and also the shortcomings that also belongs to it. Mm -hmm. And that goes very close closely together with what I mean when I say mystery. It's not something mysterious. When I say this great mystery, this divine mystery that we are confronted with and in mysticism experience, yeah. that uh, is uh, something that we cannot grasp. You see, we cannot put it in words. We cannot imagine it in an image. We cannot put it in a, in a concept. We cannot grasp it, but we can understand it. There's a great difference between grasping and mm. understanding. Mm. Mm. And you understand it by being grasped. But it does something to you. And uh, many people experience that on a different level with music. Yes, uh, yes. You understand music, but you can't grasp music. You can't... Uh, and you can't really talk about it. You, you can't. can't even talk about it because you have no words and concepts. But you can understand it when mm -hmm. you allow it mm -hmm. to take hold of you, when mm -hmm. you give yourself to the music. And that great mystery with you might call it life or God or whatever, that great mystery with which all human beings are always confronted, that we can also not grasp, obviously, but we can understand by allowing it to do something to us. Mm. And that openness is, is simply, can be totally silent. Silent openness is, is a wonderful form of prayer. Mm. Mm. One of the ways you talk about prayer, also in the context of gratitude, as um, whatever lifts your heart, right? That that's a way to start talking about the experience of prayer. Yes. Uh, well, uh, so, so talk about like how you would that advice you would give someone about how to pray. Yes. Well. Uh, Prayer uh, is by definition, in, in the Christian tradition at least, a lifting up of heart and mind to God, to that great mystery. And uh, in gratitude, what we experience when we are grateful is that something lifts up our heart, that joy that is gratitude and that joy is prayer because it lifts up our heart, yeah. whatever lifts up our heart. And we are made for that. Yeah. yeah, and you, but you said if, if it's fishing that lifts up your heart, then fishing is your prayer, yeah. or part of your prayer. I know I have to finish. Let me just, I wanted to read something that you wrote. Um, uh, no, no, I don't want to read that, sorry. Um, let me see where I want. There's so much here I had that we, that we didn't get to talk to, um, talk about. Um, Hmm. What do I do? You did your homework. I did my homework, but I it it was so much. Um, yeah, you wrote you wrote um, do whatever you do. Uh, see, yeah, with uh, 
Yeah, that we just we just talked about that prayer. I guess I just maybe finally, you know, you you studied psychology, and I sense that you're very aware of how it's instinctive for us to question gratitude. Maybe this is true in Western culture, right? To, to question its appropriateness or its purity, and also to suspect the motives of others. We get very complicated when we walk into this territory of gratitude and to withhold gratitude from others. You speak about having the courage to let ourselves down into the depth which gratitude's, gratitude opens up. And, um, and I wonder if you would just say a little bit more about that and maybe what's that, how that has come to you, like how you have experienced letting yourself down into that depth. Yes, uh, when I speak of depth and so forth, uh, those are all only images, they're, they're yeah. poetic images, uh, one must not... But it's very magnetic language, I think. Yeah, well, poetic language has yeah. more power than most yeah. other languages. Yeah. So, you wanted me to be personal, when I'm confronted with something, for instance, of which I have to say, Heavens, for this I can't be grateful, obviously. And uh, where do I find the opportunity in this? Uh, that's all too glib, and, and I have to eat my own words. Yeah. Uh, then um, I let go of all this, of all this thought and all this, and I just try to sit quietly. Uh, it's like you take this whole package of things that you don't particularly like to deal with and you throw them in a lake and they go down and go down and go down and then you just quiet yourself and when you get sufficiently quiet that may take long or it may not take very long uh, and it may not be in one sitting it may take days or weeks but when you got sufficiently quiet then uh, without you having to figure something out, some answer emerges. Uh, that's the best I can do to express it, but we find somehow the way through. This throwing it into the lake is like no resistance. You don't okay. give so you're, you're, don't you're letting rid of that fear, Let that impulse fear. fear. Just accept it. And then this anxiety may, takes a lot of courage, but you have to be, uh, you have to have anxiety to be courageous. Otherwise, if there's no anxiety, yeah, right, right. No, no courage. Right. This courage, this quiet holding, holding, and it leads to a new birth. I can't prove it, but I can encourage you to try it. Everybody <laughs> try it. And uh, I think we will find it too. Hmm. Okay. I think that's your last word. Thank you so uh, much. I hope I didn't rush you too much. Well, but, <laughs> no, no, I am. Um, there's just so much. There's so much we could talk about. You did it very, about. very nicely. And I think we covered so Yeah, no, absolutely. Is there anything you guys want? Just if there's just a few minutes. Or, are we okay? Or? Could you ask me your normal last question about what Oh, oh, hope? I was thinking about being human. You um, still have a question. Well, if, if, if I, um, I mean, I, I wanted to say this, it's this is kind of a huge question, but you're a huge thinker. Um, um, 
I mean, you grew up in, you, you you lived through these very dramatic experiences in human in in human history, and you've spent these years as a monastic, and you've been in dialogue with Buddhist monastics. You've been in dialogue with science, and I wonder here you are at this stage in your life. You know, how would you begin to talk about what? you've learned, how your sense has evolved of, of what it means to be human. Perhaps ways you would answer that question that wouldn't, you would never, ever have imagined growing up as a young man here in Vienna in the early 20th century. Well, uh, that's a very, very good question. Uh, one thing is, we have already said, in the end, everything depends on relationships. So yeah. always uh, bring it back to relationship, yeah. bring it back to human relationships. Dialogue is always important. And bring it back to human relationships. So uh, as if you were just two children, just two human beings without a long history, bring it back to the human. Mm-hmm. And uh, then incredible uh, situations, very difficult situations, uh, resolve themselves if one brings it, for instance, from I'm not a Buddhist that's speaking to a Christian, or I'm not a Muslim that's speaking to a Hindu. Uh, I'm a human being that happens to be a Buddhist to a human speaking right, to a human right, being right, that happens right. to be something else. Yeah. Uh, as human beings, and if we speak to one as human to human, yeah. then things start. Then, yeah. then things start rolling. Yeah. Uh, in the, at the moment, uh, just remembering uh, one situation, for instance, uh, was long ago in the 70s, uh, I was stuck in India uh, and uh, some travel agent was trying to get money every I was there for days every day coming again for getting out of uh, out of uh, where was I Madras was mm-hmm. the name at that time to Varanasi and uh, and he would uh, always want money for another telegram this was before computerizing you know telegram to get the information and so it was obviously <laughs> Uh, trying to milk me for all he could. And finally he was trying to sell me a a ticket and I knew this was a scam and somehow I managed to say, uh, somehow bring it to this human level and say to him, now listen, if our roles were now reversed, uh, would you buy this ticket? By no means, <laughs> you're <laughs> right. losing yeah. your money. Yeah. He was completely yeah. confused. He, yeah. he slipped into this. Yeah. Uh, and, and everything went from there on very nicely. Yeah. Well, one time I was uh, coming back from Austria to the United States with all these, uh, uh, with all these very strict uh, regulations that you can't bring any living plants and so forth. And I'm usually a stickler for these things because I think it's really very important. Yeah. But I had a little twig of ivy from the grave of my grandfather and I wanted to bring that to my mother. And sure enough, they found that. Said, What's that? That's a mm-hmm. living plant. Mm-hmm. And I just said, that's for my mother. And the man handed me <laughs> 
<laughs> Somehow he must have thought of his mother. Yeah. You see? So if we can bring people to yeah. that level where they speak as human beings to yeah. human beings, whether this is now about violence or about uh, war or about uh, the environment or about investments, whatever it is, if you bring it to that level, I think we'll make it. I think that people sense, feel that we're living in a very dark time. Um, what, what are you grateful for right now in the world? What, what gives you hope? Where, where, where does your gratitude find a, an abundant place to land? Well, one thing I have already said that's on a larger scale, uh, looking back and seeing that all uh, the most difficult experiences always lead to something new and even something better. Even, even culturally, even geopolitically. On every level. Mm-hmm. On every level. Mm-hmm. But uh, in order to keep us going, uh, it is enough to be grateful for the next breath because it's n- not <laughs> uh, to be taken for granted that I can take another breath. And uh, if I think of the millions of people who have breathing difficulties and here, I can breathe. Just to remember that. Just be grateful for the next breath. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been really, really wonderful to be here. I'm sorry that uh, it's very impolite to have to rush out. But we have to drive to Kitzbühel, you know, that's in Tyrol. Yeah, yeah. And I have to have a a talk there tonight. So it was very badly scheduled. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's been such a pleasure for us to come here, to be here. Maybe you can still see a little bit. Yeah, no, we're going to stay the weekend in Salzburg. That's good. And I have a friend who works at Schloss Leopoldskron, so she's going to give us a talk. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much. I hope our paths will cross again. I hope so too. That was really a pleasure. Yeah. We'll yeah. let you know. We'll we'll let you know when this is airing. Yes. Very good. Come sometime simply for vacation.